how does someone's theology go wrong? How does a person embrace a theology that's false? Simply put, how does theology go bad? I like expired milk. You you open it up and it stinks. (laughs) How does someone's theology end up like that? You know, you examine it and it's rotten. I think Jesus can help us answer that. But before we get to that, what I, wa- I want you to notice something as we rely a little bit upon uh, Mark's account of this passage. I want you to notice that Jesus believed that someone's theology could be wrong. So just think for a second about what Jesus didn't say in this encounter. The Sadducees come to Jesus with this question about the resurrection, and he didn't respond with some of the answers that you might expect to hear today. He didn't say, you know, hey, Sadducees, okay, guys, you're being way, you're being way too serious, too theological, too doctrinal, too, too heady. Ease up a little bit. Or, or he didn't say, look, these sorts of questions are irrelevant. What really matters is the experience in your heart. Uh, he doesn't say, look, these sorts of questions are are, uh, are unimportant, don't, don't waste your time with this theology stuff, because all that matters is love. Jesus didn't say that, nor, nor did he say, look, you know, no one can really know ultimate truth. You, know, you, have, you have your view, I have mine. You know, whatever, whatever your community says, or whatever you feel that's truth for you, doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, you've got your viewpoint, I've got mine, and both can be right. Listen to what Jesus did say in in Mark's account. In Mark chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus said to the Sadducees about what they believed, flat out, you're wrong. (laughs) And if that wasn't clear enough, a few verses later in verse 27, he says, you are quite wrong. So Jesus believed that some theology was bad. Now, not every theological argument is worth having. And I think it's a particular temptation, perhaps within our own circles, to get into arguments that are not worth having. We should, uh, we should hold to some of our views lightly. We can be, we can be nitpicky, uh, narrow, uh, judgmental, and all of those things are bad. But listen, if, if you have the attitude that theology doesn't matter, frankly, you will find no sympathy with Jesus. And some of us may be doing that in, in one way or another, thinking, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't need to think. The last thing I need is for careful thinking to get in the way of what I, what I love and what I do. Thinking has nothing to do with my relationship with Jesus. It's it's what I feel and what I do that really matters. Some might even think that thinking stifles (coughs) heartfelt religion. I I really think as we reflect upon what Jesus has to say here, that Jesus has no sympathy for that way of thinking. He 
showed that what you believe matters. And he said to the Sadducees, you are wrong. So how does, how does theology go bad? Let's come back to this question. As we look at this encounter, I think Jesus identifies two general ways theology goes bad, and then two specific ways that the Sadducees' theology had gone wrong. He mentions the general reasons in Mark very clearly. Mark chapter 12, verse 24. So how does theology go bad? Why do people hold the wrong beliefs? I think at the basic level, these two things will be involved. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Those are the two general reasons theology goes bad. You're going to get theology wrong if you don't know the scriptures and the power of God. So let's just think about this first general way that theology goes bad if you don't know the scriptures. And if you don't know the scriptures as the final authority for what you believe and how you live, for faith and life. You know, there are actually some groups today, confessing Christian groups today, who (coughs) explicitly, consciously, so they know what they're doing, say that their final authority is not the Bible. Just listen to this quotation from uh, one uh, uh, theologian. He's, he's, don't, don't buy these books. There's three volumes. It's on the development of liberal theology in America. And you know, buy them if you want to go to sleep at night. But um, he, he's, he's sympathetic to liberal theology. But I think he gives a very helpful definition of what liberal theology is all about. Listen to what he says. He says, the essence of liberal theology is the idea that Christian theology can be genuinely Christian without being based on an external authority. Since the 18th century, liberal Christian thinkers have argued that religion should be modern and progressive and that the meaning, listen to this, and that the meaning of Christianity should be interpreted from the standpoint of modern knowledge and experience. That's pretty clear, I think. You hear what he's saying? If you have someone telling you, or a church telling you, that what Christians believe is not at the end of the day determined by Scripture, but by modern knowledge and personal experience... That's not historic Orthodox Christianity. That's liberalism. I'm not trying to put a curse word upon it. That's just what it is. That's, that's liberal theology. Modern knowledge and personal experience become the final authority. And scripture must actually be subordinated to what we can learn from modern knowledge and modern personal experiences. But so let's, let's just continue this line of thought for a few minutes and think about maybe some more common ways within our own circles that Scripture is not seen as the final authority. I think, just to help us imagine this for a second, I think for some people today, working out what you believe is a bit like going to the grocery store. You, know, you, go, you go down the grocery aisle, you've got your, uh, 
You've got your buggy or your cart, whatever word you prefer. And you're going down the aisle and you see something on the shelf that you like, so you take it and you put it in the cart. And then you see something you don't like, find distasteful, so you leave it there on the shelf. That's how some people form their beliefs today. They, they are the final arbiter in deciding what goes in and what gets left out. But there are, I think, other ways for Scripture to, to not be the rule of our faith in our lives. You know, we can, we can subtly put other things in authority over the Bible. I think a common way that this occurs today is we can place our desires or our feelings over and above what Scripture says. So it goes something like this in the thinking of a person. You know, I, I really want to be able to do this or I don't want to be told that I'm not supposed to do this. And so the argument goes simply this, I don't feel like that's what Scripture teaches. And that's the end of the argument. You know, no, no, no real wrestling with what Scripture actually says. No thorough study of what the Bible teaches because feelings, what we feel to be right, trumps the truth. Or, you know, in a confessional church, let's recognize this possibility. We can get mixed up by putting our confession or our catechisms over Scripture. Now, I love our confession and catechisms as faithful summaries of Scripture, <clears throat> but they must always be understood to be subordinate to the Bible, to what God has revealed. That, that Apply that principle a little bit more. Some of you maybe have Christian authors, and you, you, you so appreciate them that every book they write, you buy and read. Maybe in today's connected age, you listen to Christian podcasts, or maybe you even listen to sermons online throughout the week. Or let's add in here, your, your own pastor's teaching. All of these things must be underneath the authority of Scripture. But I think, let me, let me just add one more way, and I actually think this is the most common way Theology goes bad today in the lives of many people, and it's simply this. Theology goes bad by simply letting your friends or your family or your coworkers or the shows and movies you watch or the music that you listen to or the literature that you're reading shape your view of yourself and God more than the Bible. And actually, that, that, that's happening in the lives of a lot of people, a lot of Christians. Without even realizing it, the world is placing a pair of spectacles upon your face through which you view God and yourself. But you see, if all you do is imbibe the, the worldview around you, and you don't know the scriptures then you will not be able to think God's thoughts after him. You, you will not be able to see the world and yourself as God wants you to see the world and yourself. And if we're humbly honest, dear friends, although we have ready access to the Bible, although we live in an age where we have greater access to the scriptures than any other Christians before us, 
we don't really know it that well, do we? And we confess that the Bible is God's very word to us. It's inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible, all of those things. It's the inscripturated word of God so that where scripture speaks, God speaks. But isn't it the case, dear friends, that so often what we confess about the Bible, what it is, does not really line up with how often we treat it and its place in our lives. See, one of the consequences of sin is that we are spiritually blind. You know, if we're Christians and God has worked in our lives, he has begun a renewing work. He has begun to restore our sight. But, you know, things are still, things are still fuzzy and gray and blurry in areas. And, and we, need, we need glasses to see clearly again. And one of the ways I think we should think about the Bible is the Bible is a God-given pair of prescription glasses. And it enables you to see God clearly, to see yourself clearly, to interpret the world as it really is. But I think some Christians, you know, you wake up in the morning and it's kind of like, there your glasses are on the nightstand and you just say, well, I don't, I don't need to wear those today. I'll be just fine. And you go around with 2200 vision when you could be walking around with 2020 vision. Well, let me be clear about something. You know, if you're, if you're a new Christian, you know, things aren't very clear. That's okay. You're, you're learning, you're studying the scriptures. But I think we also have to recognize that many of us have been walking with the Lord for many years and we know in our own hearts, don't we, that we should, we should see far more clearly than we often do. And so Jesus says, theology goes bad when you do not know the scriptures, when your minds and your hearts are not saturated in God's given word. And friends, we have we have the scriptures and we have the spirit of illumination. And here we are today in the household of faith where the God appointed place where we learn and study the scriptures together and hear God speak to his people. So let's be a church and a people who know the scriptures as our final rule of faith in life. Here's the second general way theology goes bad. Not knowing the power of God. Now we need to understand the power of God scripturally. Otherwise you get people saying all sorts of crazy things. Like I know, I know you're going to be rich. I know you're going to get married one day. I know God's going to give you children. I, I know you're going to have a job next week. I, I know that God is going to heal you of your disease. Because well we believe in the power of God. Dear friends, let's make sure that we don't make promises that God himself has not spoken in his word. It's not a matter of can he, but a matter of will he. But God has power. And if you've grown up in the church, a church that taught you the Bible, then you've learned about the power of God all of your life. As you taught, were taught those stories in scripture, you were learning about the power of God. You were learning about the power of of God who, who brought the universe, the created order into being by the word of his power. You learned about God who delivered his people out of Egypt and displayed his power among the nations with the ten plagues. A God who, 
by his power, split open the waters and had his people pass through the waters on dry land. You learned about a God who shut the mouths of lions. And, and you know, maybe as a child you believed these stories, but maybe as you've grown older, you've just kind of gotten to the point where you don't really believe them anymore. My friends, if you believe God said, let there be light, and from nothing, but by God's power, light came into being, if you believe that Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children with nothing more than a, couple, a few loaves of bread and a few fish, then, then you believe in the power of God. Liberal Christianity, which rejects the authority of the Bible, will try to demythologize the Bible by denying the power of God. They err because they do not know the scriptures or the power of of God. You know, when you think about it then, what you believe about these miracles, some of which we just mentioned, they actually count for a lot because it reveals what you actually believe about God. Is he a God with power? The Sadducees, they saw themselves as the enlightened intellectuals of their day. They were social elites who had actually become secularists in many of their ways of thinking. They said, in essence, look, we can't believe in a God who says there are angels and demons and an afterlife. So they rejected all of those things. So again, what we believe about God's power says a lot about us. Do we believe that People can change by God's power. Do we believe that God has the power to break addictions? Does God have the power to see you through suffering and trials? You're going through a difficult situation and you're looking at it from your own perspective and you're saying no way, but you remember you have a father in heaven who cares for you and who is omnipotent, all-powerful, but do you, believe, do you believe God has the power to convert people, even the hardest of hearts? I think if we believed that more deeply, then we would be more generous in the way that we sow gospel seeds. Do we believe in God's power when it comes to answering prayer? Or has prayer become a sort of empty ritual where we, we really think in our heart of hearts, you know, I, I, I don't really think prayer does anything in the end, but it's something I'm supposed to do, so I'm just going to go through the religious motions. And just say as an aside here, brothers and sisters, let's, let's be a church that believes in the power of prayer. Actually, not the power of prayer, it's the power of God to answer prayer, isn't it? And we get together Sunday evenings for, <clears throat> among other things, a time to pray with and for one another. You know, many of you, uh, I know, can't make it for legitimate reasons, but others of you should really think about coming. And I cannot think of a reason why we would not have a long list of prayer requests. <laughs> because one, we are a desperately needy people. 
And two, we believe in the power of God to answer prayer. So let's be a people who pray fervently. Theology goes wrong when you do not know the scriptures and the power of God. And so brothers and sisters, let's devote ourselves to these things. We want to be a church with open Bibles, trusting in a big God. If we have those two things, I think we're on a good track. Open Bibles, trusting in a big God. Theology goes wrong when we don't search the scriptures, study the scriptures, submit our thinking and our lives to the scriptures. And theology goes wrong when we question God's power. Those are the two general reasons theology goes bad. But let's look at two of the specific ways the, the Sadducees' theology went wrong. Specifically, they were in error because they didn't know about the age to come and they didn't really know what God is like. Didn't know about the age to come. Think about this for me, with me for a minute. First, let me say something about the Sadducees. We've already seen the, the priests and the scribes and the elders and the Herodians and the Pharisees come at Jesus with their questions to try to trip him up and get him in trouble. And this time, <coughs> it's, it's the Sadducees. They are the, the ruling elites. They actually made up the majority of the Sanhedrin. They, they ran the temple. They, they ran in higher circles. They were men of rank and status. They were often collaborators with Rome. So they were not very popular with the people. And they were fine with that because, well, they were doing pretty good. So think of them as wealthy, uh, ruling aristocrats. And I think you have an idea. These are the Sadducees. And Pharisees and Sadducees did not agree on a lot of things. Uh, the Pharisees believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees did not. Pharisees accepted the, the Torah, uh, the writings and the prophets. That is the whole Old Testament along with their oral traditions. The Sadducees accepted only the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Pharisees believed that there would be a resurrection. Sanhedrin, or uh, the Sadducees, excuse me, did not. Uh, Acts 23, verse 8, it says, For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. So here's, here's what the Sadducees are thinking. Okay, they're thinking, we can, we can all you guys failed, but we're, we're going to get Jesus. We're going to catch him in something he says. They know the Pharisees believe in a resurrection. They know that the Pharisees are popular with the people. So they think, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do. Either he's going to agree with us and lose his popularity and credibility with the, with the crowd. Or we're just going to make him look so stupid and silly for believing in something as ridiculous as a resurrection. That's their plan. So they ask this question about leverate marriage. It's a law found in Deuteronomy 25 that says, okay, you're a man and your brother dies and his widow doesn't have an heir, then you need to take her as a wife and produce an offspring and that child will become the heir of the deceased brother's inheritance. So the family line may continue. And you might hear that, yeah, I'm, kind of, I'm glad that one's not in effect anymore. <laughs> but there was a reason for it. There was a reason for it. Good reasons. The idea was that you would help the widow as a sort of social safety net so that she wasn't left in a place of vulnerability without care. 
It was a way of perpetuating the family line and keeping the family inheritance intact. So they proposed this unlikely, but I guess imaginable situation to Jesus. Okay, there's, there's a wife and she's married to a brother, one of these brothers, and he dies. So she marries the second brother, and he dies. She marries the third brother, and he dies. And on and on and on, until all seven brothers, now with, with no heir. So now Jesus, here's our question. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Is she going to be married to the first brother, the last brother, all seven? How's this going to work? See, they're trying to make it look absolutely ridiculous. But notice what Jesus does. Look at how Jesus responds. He, he explodes, he blows apart their assumption. Their assumption was that if there was a resurrection, then life in the age to come would be exactly like life during this present age in the here and now. But Jesus, what he does is he shows us that while there is important continuity between this life and the life to come, that there is also important discontinuity. And this goes along with the rest of the teaching of Scripture. Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about the resurrection of the body. And he says, right now you have a, you have a natural body and in the resurrection you will have a spiritual body. It's still your body. It's still a physical body, but it will be different in some important ways. Uh, think about what uh, Revelation teaches us about the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth will be like this world, yet without sin. What does the Bible teach about eternity? What will eternal life be like? It's not eternal, you know, internally disembodied souls floating around in the clouds playing harps. Revelation 21 teaches us that eternity is life with God on a renewed earth. The, the heavenly Jerusalem will come down and God will make his dwelling among us in the new heavens and the new earth so that heaven and earth will be one. So there's continuity and there's difference, important difference. It's not identical. And so in particular, the Sadducees assumed that marriage... Marriage will be at the very center of the resurrected life. Look at what Jesus says in verse 24. Uh, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but in the age to come you neither marry nor are given in marriage because you're like angels in the resurrection, sons of the resurrection. What's, what's he saying? Well, at least two things, I think. First of all, I think behind what Jesus is teaching here is he's Reminding us that marriage isn't ultimately about your marriage. So long as you assume that the ultimate satisfaction of life is found in marriage, you are going to be profoundly disappointed. Because marriage was never created by God for your ultimate satisfaction. Marriage was created by God to help you through this life with companionship and mutual help and a context for raising children for the Lord, for those called to it and those who have experienced some degree of what marriage is supposed to be. You know, marriage is a blessing from the Lord in this present age. 
Let's face it, though. I mean, if you're, if you're anything like me and you read this passage, you may struggle a bit with this text and think, Lord, don't, don't take this away from me. If God has blessed you with a happy marriage, then that might be what you're thinking. But if it is, I think if, if we find this <coughs> to be a challenge, it is partly because we have yet to really understand that marriage is there to point us to the greater, deeper satisfaction that is found in Jesus Christ. And resurrection life, what is resurrection life? Resurrection life is entering into the fullness of that satisfaction. So it's not as though when God resurrects you that he is withdrawing blessing, that he's taking blessings away. Whatever joy you experience in marriage now is but the foretaste of a greater joy to come. That's why in Revelation, as we saw earlier, it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christ is the groom and the church is his bride. So that this earthly marriage, as good and as wonderful as it may be for some of us, it is but a shadow of the real thing that is to come, the substance. So no one, no one will be standing um, in the new heavens and the new earth saying, man, I wish I was still married. They'll be saying perhaps, perhaps to their spouse when they dwelled here during this present age. Wow, now, now we really see what it was all about. So Jesus takes their whole premise Sadducees, and he just blows it to pieces. Yeah, you know, your, your scenario uh, with a woman and seven husbands, that's, that's pretty funny, guys, but uh, you're not going to be married in the age to come, so why don't you try again? You don't understand the age to come. Because in the age to come, people will not be given in marriage any longer. Marriage will have fulfilled its created purpose for this present Age And in the age to come, God will be all in all. You know, I think that reflecting on this passage raises a question that maybe, maybe you've heard it put something like this before. If you, could, if you could have this deal, would you take it? Okay. One day you're going to go to heaven. You're going to be in a world without sin any longer and it's going to be like one long extended vacation you're at the beach you get to eat the best meals you get to go swimming and don't worry about any sharks you'll be fine you get to sleep in go for a ride read a book on the beach imagine whatever your ideal is whatever it is you can have all of these things with your family Does that sound like a good deal to you? And then, okay, but what about Jesus? And then maybe we think, oh yeah, well yeah, Jesus. It's always good to have another friend. Yeah, I'd like to have Jesus there. If If we think heaven is those things without Jesus, dear friends, we have missed the boat. We have missed what the Christian hope is really all about. 
But if your hope is for a world where God will be all in all, then you're on the right track. And maybe that's one of the reasons why the Bible really doesn't have a whole lot to say about what the new heavens and new earth is going to be like. Because we might say, well, it's going to be like a vacation or it's going to be like a great family reunion. I I hate the beach. (laughs) I don't want to be with my family forever. (laughs) What it tells us is we will be, be before the throne and we will see Jesus face to face. And if that makes your heart sing, then you're ready to begin to understand what marriage is really all about. Here's the the second specific error of the Pharisees. They didn't know what God was like. Is like in verses 37 and 38. We we need to clarify a couple of things. This text gets kind of complicated, but it's worth thinking about. So let's first add this clarification. We talked about it a little bit earlier. First, the resurrection in the age to come is different from what we call the intermediate state. The Sadducees believe that when you died, that's it, you were done, gone, no existence. But scripture teaches that when you die, and we're thinking here specifically about believers, while your body rests in the grave, your your body passes into heaven. Your soul goes and enters into the presence of the Lord. It's immediately perfected in holiness. You're with Christ. You're joyful. And yet something is incomplete. You're longing for something else. You're longing for the resurrection that is yet to come. There's an intermediate state. You're in the presence of the Lord, full of joy, but you're still awaiting the day of resurrection because our ultimate hope is the resurrection and the renewal of all things at the end of this age. And Jesus is dealing here, it might not sound like it at first, but he's dealing with the intermediate state, and he's arguing that if deceased believers are alive in the intermediate state, if that's true, then we know that the resurrection will occur also. So when Jesus talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob being alive, he's not saying that they've been resurrected. They haven't been resurrected yet. He's saying since deceased believers are alive, then the resurrection is sure to occur. Uh, The the other thing to clarify, in verse 37, it appears that Jesus is basing his whole argument on a verb tense. But but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the book, uh, Bush, he's he's talking about Exodus. Remember, Sadducees only recognized the first five books of the Bible, so Jesus is going to make his argument from there. And in the passage, the Lord said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is often understood that Jesus' point is, well, look, it's in the present tense. It doesn't say I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which would imply that they're no longer in existence. It's I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore they're still alive. Well, I think that's true as far as it goes, But I don't think it captures the depth of what Jesus is really saying. So what is Jesus saying? It goes deeper than the verb tense. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob. If we know the scriptures, then we know that that is deeply significant language. It's covenantal language. God promised to be a God to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And to be their God implies that he would be their their helper and their aid and their support, their defender, their shield, their savior and their redeemer. And by definition, God cannot be the God of the dead. It's a contradiction of terms. So when God declares himself to be their God, he is saying, I am the one who cares for them. I am the one who blesses them. I am the one who supports them. I am the one who redeems them. I am their God. Jesus, just backtracking a little bit in the Gospels, Jesus has already uh, made it clear that he believed that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive. He says in, uh, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. I think we should say, you know, God, God would not put his name upon dead and snuffed out people because he is the God of the living and not of the dead. But a covenant relationship, that's what this language entails. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A covenant relationship with God involves promises. And it's, it's interesting. I think this is so fascinating If you go back to Exodus chapters 3 and 4, where Jesus is making his argument from, that statement, the Lord identifies himself four times to Moses as, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And each time, what's the purpose of God doing that? Each time it's to assure Moses, as I send you to Egypt to redeem my people, I am with you. I will deliver my people. I will be the one who redeems my people out of bondage in Egypt. God's covenant name is the assurance that he will care for his people. And so when God is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's not just saying that that God hasn't forgotten dead and gone ancestors. It's saying that even now, God is their God for they live. God is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. If the patriarchs are dead and gone, then his covenant promises have failed. You think about that. And God promised Abraham to, that he would inherit a land. They, they died having not inherited the land, we're told in Hebrews. He promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, and through him the whole world would be blessed. If he's Dead and gone, dear friends, God has failed to keep his promises. So far from being merely a little technicality about verb tense, Jesus points to this name of God because it's a summary statement of the whole covenant. I am a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will be their God, and so they are alive. And if alive, they will be raised. So, friends, don't, don't just think that Christianity is about, you know, some, some right beliefs and you get to go to heaven. 
It's not this kind of crass transaction where you give God a little bit of faith and he gives you eternal life. It's a covenant relationship established by God with his people, which not even death can sever. And so we understand that Jesus, well, let's just take a passage like John 11. You know these verses well when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus asks, do you, do you believe this? You see, our hope is that when we die, we live. And our ultimate hope is that all those who live in Christ will be raised with Christ to never die again. And we believe that because our God is the God of the living and not of the dead. You see what that means then? Just follow that out. It means Abraham lives. Isaac lives. Jacob lives. David lives. Paul and Peter live. Augustine lives. Trace it on through church history. Bring it to your family. Your godly grandparents live. Your mom and dad who walked with the Lord live. Your loved ones who followed the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted him with their lives. Though they have died, they live. And they will be raised again because God is their God and has saved them to live. What's the language? To live to him. They will be raised to fulfill the purpose for which they were made. And Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of this life to come. So we know that those who have died in the Lord are alive because God is their God. And we know that with Jesus Christ, they will be raised because Jesus died and was raised, and his resurrection was the first fruits of a great resurrection harvest to come. Well, let's pray together. God of our fathers, we thank you that you are the God of the living and not of the dead. We thank you that you are the God of those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And we pray this morning, Lord, that we would understand and believe these truths for ourselves so that we would not be a people who do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Work these truths into our hearts. Give us gospel faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.